Hey there, greetings everyone and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have Chris Tuff with us today from Atlanta, Georgia. Now Chris is the youngest partner in the history of a 100-year-old advertising firm. He's also an accomplished digital marketer, investor, business development leader, and is out there spreading the word as to how you can really enjoy what you do. So he's got his new book called The Millennial Whisperer, and we'll find out about all that from him. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So in your words, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, so I, I put it in the context of currencies, right? And uh, my first currency was really born out of, I graduated from Vanderbilt and um, had 64 failed job interviews. And um, it was those 64, fail, it was lucky 65th that I finally had a job interview of something I was somewhat passionate about, which was this idea that I could be creative in a job and, and get paid for it. And that was for a digital advertising firm in 2003. And, and uh, I got that job. So it was good news to both myself and my parents. And, um, you know, what was interesting is if you followed that kind of currency that was developed over time, I made five lateral moves within that agency as we grew, as kind of the internet marketing world started to evolve. And so I was an account executive. I was a horrible account executive uh, and because I'm not very detail oriented. I did that for two years. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a creative uh, copywriter. And I was by far, I was one of the worst creative copywriters in advertising history. And then I was like, all right, well, there's this new social media thing that's starting to happen. You know, that kind of combines all of my interests and passions. And uh, I kind of doubled down on that. And it was right as Mark Zuckerberg was going from colleges, graduating from kind of colleges into the general public. And on behalf of one of our clients, I got to work directly with him and his team and building those first advertising products. And what then happened is that kind of, spiraled into this place of uh my first taste of where passion and profession overlapped and 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 i tell audiences that when that happens ridiculous things tend to happen to you and um you know i ended up having one of the first viral videos of me getting engaged to my wife before youtube i was on the front page of the wall street journal and that was really my first currency and and it took those lateral moves in what i would state as my own ruthless pursuit of passions that i was able to really grow that over time and you know one of the important things that i think as humans is that we evolve our currencies to actually evolve with us as humans because you know even with kids i find that as i become a parent of 12 a now 12 and 10 year old i evolve more and more and but yet we get stuck in these careers that are more one track minded. And so it actually took hitting rock bottom at the age of 36 with my currency being the digital and social guy for me to really kind of look outside of myself. And um, in that moment, a few big things in that rock bottom moment changed. And that was really putting all of my efforts to my 400 employees who were largely millennial and Gen Zers. And uh, it was about seven months after that, I was on an executive retreat and I was introducing myself around the fire and I didn't know how to introduce myself because I was no longer the digital and social guy. And I was like, hey guys, I'm Chris Tuff and I'm kind of like the millennial whisperer. And these guys kind of lit up and 
they after I shared my story, they're like, so tell me what you do with these this generation. They're the worst to come along, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, actually, you know, here's some of the tactics I use. And these guys, you know, the 14 of them, all of it super successful, mid-50s entrepreneurs. They're like, Chris, you got to write that book. And so I went off and wrote that. And it was actually about eight months after that that I would say my currency changed, right? My currency changed from that of a digital and social expert to more of this culture expert. Um, and so, you know, if you keep going with that same story arc, uh, when the pandemic hit, I was like, well, what if I took that same concept of connection inward, right? Which was the millennial whisper, taking a vested interest in your people and some of the things as leaders we should and can do. And I directed that outward from a sales and networking perspective. And that's how my most recent book, Save Your Asks was born with it's a call to action in networking and selling that we all need to save our asks and actually go in with a genuine connection as being the desired outcome. And a byproduct of that, you end up doing business together. And it's actually in that book that I talk more about the importance of all of us growing side hustles, all of us more ruthlessly pursuing our passions and all of us doing something that will move us in the direction of evolving our currencies. That's pretty awesome. So one, one aspect of it, when you talked about hitting rock bottom, can you talk a little bit more about that? What was that rock bottom and what happened? I think, and you know, anytime you hear someone talk about rock bottoms, they, they manifest themselves in, in different ways. And for me, in retrospect, so that was six years ago, uh, my rock bottom was what most people would probably see as like a midpoint, right? But for me, it was low. And, um, and it took, you know, it manifested itself as like a, a few anxiety attacks and just, you know, more than two days in a row waking up feeling really down. And, um, and so I actually decided to take a sabbatical and take a month off and really dig inside myself. What is it that I'm I need to change. And three main things happened in that one month of really being alone with myself and, um, and connecting inward that, um, that really then were the catalyst to that, my next chapter. And, and one was my metric of success. And my metric of success up until age 36 was beating my older brothers in the game of life. And they, like you, have this Ivy League track, right? They didn't go to Cornell, but they went to, you know, all the other, the, your competitors of, of um, in the Ivy League's track. And it was a horrible metric of success. And so I said, okay, that's the first thing to change. And my new metric of success will be judged on a daily basis. And it's gonna be solely through this lens of impact. And when my head hits the pillow, did I have the impact I intended? Um, the second thing was doubling down on my wife and my two daughters. I'd lost sight of what was most important to me, which were was my family. And so I committed to them that I would spend more deliberate time with them and not be hobnobbing around the world and playing the status game, which is what I was doing. And then the third thing that changed was really me taking all of these efforts and putting them into other people. Right. And and really, if, you know, that third piece, if, if I were to call it down into a purpose statement, it's to inspire and connect with others. But even more so, my greatest gift, as well as what gets me so fired up, is helping to unlock people's dream and then being the catalyst to then help them pursue that in some form or fashion. 
And it's not always quitting your job in order to pursue those things. And so, yeah, that, that, that for me was really, it was, it, it, it probably in retrospect, it looks like a dot kind of on that story arc of life, but going through it, I felt like it was never going to end. And, um, and it was the loneliest period probably of my, my, my life, but so necessary. I, I go back to my human development teacher at Vanderbilt and he said, crisis catalyzes change. And that's exactly what it did for me. Absolutely. Let's go back a little bit further down, right? When you actually started down the path of uh, trying to figure out what you wanted to do, you mentioned 64 failed attempts, right? So, yeah. so let's, let's revisit that part of it, right? So how was sure. that? Was, was that you trying to apply to anything that came your way or were you deliberate in what you wanted to do, but still finding it frustrating? So talk us through that experience. There was no rhyme or reason. I mean, you know, if you go back to that market, um, 2003, we were just coming out of the dot-com crash. Um, jobs were not all that easy to be had. And I had actually moved from my Southeastern roots to Boston, uh, which in retrospect probably wasn't the best move because I didn't really have a network there. And so I really took anything that was thrown my way. I, I interviewed for everything from like a Xerox um, copy, uh, Xerox copy machine salesperson all the way through to being an institutional sales representative at Bear Stearns. And so there was no rhyme or reason to that process, but it was actually in that process that I finally began to learn more about myself. And, you know, today I feel like we have so many tools available to us, whether it be Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Culture Index, um, strength finders, these things that actually allow us to understand what drives us as humans and what we're generally, you know, um, kind of wired to do. But it was actually in those 64 failed job interviews that I learned those things. I call it almost like the, and it wasn't just the 64 failed job interviews, but it was also all those, those lateral moves that I made before I found that sweet spot that ultimately became my first currency and pathway to success. Um, but yeah, so there's no rhyme or reason. I think, and I think the people interviewing me could sense that this guy's not very passionate about this. Like, why is he here? One thing that you mentioned that you, your focus was, was on the millennials, right? So what, what was it about the millennials that really got you interested in trying to unravel that puzzle? That's one, one part of my question. And then, you know, there, there's these other generations after that, right? So for instance, Generation Z and, and so on yeah. and so, so forth. Now, do you see similarities or do you see any distinct differences between them and the millennials? And what's your take on that? Sure. So going into the digital and social world from the very beginning, 2006, right? It was just being invented. I was always surrounded by people younger than myself and I'm right on the cusp. So I'm, I'm about to be 42 next week. So, you know, I was kind of naturally inclined towards connecting with the young, you know, those that are just a year younger than me and, or, you know, four years younger than me, whatever it is. And uh, as we continued to evolve our agency that's been around for a hundred years, most of our hires were younger, right? So as I heard from some of my 
entrepreneurial friends, the gripes that they were going through, I actually really took on their behalf arguing why they're massive assets to our organizations. And, you know, it got me to this hypothesis that millennials aren't the problem, they just expose all the problems. And so I started to look at the data points and I used over 72 data points. I worked directly with Vanderbilt University and, and culling a lot of that stuff together. And, you know, what I found was that really all of these things that millennials are wanting within leadership in their organizations, we all want. And that's how I wrote the book with stories to support some of those data sources. But, you know, breaking it down, I mean, I can, I can tell you, and it's no, it's not that much different to Gen Z. Uh, I, I can talk about those differences in a second, but, you know, from an organizational standpoint and now post pandemic, it just made a lot of that stuff happen faster. And, um, and, you know, we've seen now in the marketplace that employers, employees are now the drivers, right? Like they, they can actually dictate their terms and employers are the ones that are struggling the most with retention and attraction. And so if you break it down from an organizational standpoint, the number one, the single most, um, important thing that we can adapt is work flexibility. All right. And. And that to me is the easiest thing for all of us to start wrapping our heads around. And it's more than just working from where you want to work. Um, you know, I talk about work flexibility, you know, really empowering your people to help dictate some of those new things is, do we go back to the office? Do we not go back to the office, you know, for hourly workers or manufacturers? What does that look like? What does work flexibility look like? And I actually use an example for work flexibility of a company out of California. And when I'm doing a speech on it, I have the audience guess what company it is, but on the one year anniversary of your starting that position at the company, you are allowed to create your own job position with the caveat that you just have to sell in that job position to everyone else on the team. And if they all nod their head to it, you end up doing that job. And, you know, I, I have the audience guess and they're like, you know, Uber or Facebook, Twitter, or one of these tech companies. And it's actually Morningstar Tomato Farms and uh, their tomato paste company out of California and within their manufacturing facility where they're bottling this tomato paste, they have a 99% retention rate. And that's one of the things of how they're wrapping their arms around work flexibility. So work flexibility is one of the biggest things that we can start really putting action and, um, and um, embracing on the leadership side, it's three main traits, which is much more difficult to impact because you're dependent on people. And one is inspirational leadership, two is autonomy, and three is transparency. And uh, if you look at Gen X and boomers, those traits weren't really in the, you know, even top seven or eight um, in terms of what they were looking for in, in leaders. And, and there's a bunch of reasons sociologically why that is. Um, but, you know, and then now I have these organizations that are like, I can't stand these millennials. Like, and then they're saying, well, what about Gen Z? And I'm like, well, if you can't get the older millennials right, good luck with Gen Zers. And, and as you go from older millennials, which in application, we're talking about 41 year olds, right? To 35 older millennials. And then you've got younger millennials, 35 to 24. And then you've got Gen Zers, 24 and younger. The biggest changes that I'm seeing, um, at least from the a data perspective, is an increased need as you get 
uh, younger, an increased need for having a greater, a greater um, impact on the society and standing for a purpose that is truly greater than just profits. And you know what I tell organizations is that profits and perfect purpose can go hand in hand. And um, you know, and then the other piece is the ways in which actually it's the boomers and Xers that do it so well, which is this interpersonal communication. The younger you get, the more work they have to grow that muscle because mid millennials, 35, all the way through Gen Zers at age 13, they were given a brand new iPhone with a Snapchat account on it. And so they haven't had the ability to create and build this muscle on an interpersonal side. So they're really good with innovation and digital, right? But they are horrible, generally speaking, the younger you get at actually communicating interpersonally face to face. And so there's this almost increased need for us to create rules as well as training programs to help them adapt there. So that, that that's kind of answering the question number two for you. Sure. So, so let me just take that a little further, right? So with, with sure. the Gen, you know, with Gen Z or this next Gen Alpha that they're talking about, uh, what's the evolution of these dynamics that you see? You know, the way I look at it is Gen X or baby boomers, you know, they were more grounded, more focused on putting bread on the table, uh, so to speak. And then, you know, Gen X and millennials, there's a little bit of flexibility, uh, lifestyle, uh, all of that came into being, you know, part of the generation did not see technology evolve as much as the other part of the generation where technology has evolved. But when we look at uh, these future generations, they're born uh, with technology more or less in hand. Um, and, you know, they're born into gig economies and, you know, passion projects and, and that. So what, what do you see as the future evolution of work so i love this question oh, i love this question I actually and it was funny it was the height of the pandemic and i had that was the uh that was the main topic for a uh international keynote i did actually it was just a q a with cushman and wakefield and let me tell you they didn't really enjoy what i had to say in my my predictions but i think it's two sides one is the future of work especially for younger millennials and gen zers I, I do feel like it's more of, as it relates to the office and work flexibility, it's going to be more of a hive mentality, right? We come in, we get together, and then we, especially individual contributors, will go and get into wherever that zone that we flow in, that we can actually get into a flow state, we go there. So it's kind of coming in and coming out. So we are getting together and meeting face to face, right? In a, in a place that um, we can all meet, we brainstorm together in person. We meet with clients in person, but then people kind of go back to their individual cells in order to actually do the thing. So from a future of work, I do feel like it's going to be more of, we're going to see more creative hybrid structures with um, flexible work environments, et cetera. And in terms of the future of work, and I, I look at it through the lens of my daughters who are 12 and 10, I do truly believe that our children and the kind of Gen Z set will have more of a portfolio of companies that they work for. And I mean, I look at my own life. I've, I've, I've got five companies that I kind of dip in and out of that actually fuel this overarching ecosystem underneath my own purpose and passions of to inspire and connect the world. And so, you know, I take my 12 year old, for example, and 
I think she will have a portfolio of companies that she will do probably around horseback riding if it goes the way that it's been going because she's obsessed with horseback riding and horses. And for the first time ever, you know, one of the things I get a lot of pushback on is this idea that life can and should be a, a ruthless pursuit of passions. And now with technology and the way that the world has evolved with being able to connect and monetize those things, side hustles, if done correctly, right, can create massive amounts of opportunity for people. Um, and, you know, and then it goes into, so the two traits that I'm trying to instill in my daughters and these, this next generation is tenacity and resilience. Cause I don't think that we have enough of it because what society is showing is this get rich quick, you know, guy sitting on front of the Lambo with hundred dollar bills. And it's not that, that's not that way. We all know that, especially as entrepreneurs. And so it's really teaching them those traits through sports and other things that, they need to grow those muscles to actually be able to f to see that all the way through. Um, and so, yeah, that's my, those are my predictions and yeah. So, you know, here, here's another thought on that, right? So to your point, the, the ability to show patience, perseverance, resilience, that's more stronger in probably Gen X and it was to an extent in baby boomers 100%. too. And then as we get to the newer generations, it's uh, they get frustrated very quickly. You know that that immediate uh, they need to see that impact immediately. Hundred percent. And it's a it's a it's a trained skill. And you know a lot of lot of us. And I don't know. You, I see that uh, with, with my kids, where you know I have to constantly uh, reinforce that in them that you know you every trial mm -hmm. you're not going to be successful doesn't mean that you get frustrated and and give up. You know that aspect. And I think that is a product of social, social media and parenting, right? I love dissecting this parenting thing. And it's the same reason why genuine connection is the most important trait organizations need to be instilling to create a culture where people actually want to go to work. Um, and it's this idea of, I mean, let's just take a dinnertime dis uh, discussion, right? With your kids or my kids versus how it was with our parents. And I don't know how, I have a British father, so I'm actually much more of a uh, Gen Xer in the way that I was brought up because, and the youngest of six kids, and when I sat down, it was, Christopher, like, um, how are your grades? What is it that you're working on? Where it is that you're, are you going? You know, it's, it's, it was very authoritarian in nature. You juxtapose that to, especially like these Gen Zers who are in their younger 20s, their parents are like, hey, are we playing beer pong tonight? Like, and and like, uh, tell me who you're hanging out with. Like, what con do you want me to go to the concerts with you? Right. Coupled with some snowplow parenting, right, where they get rid of. I've had I have a story in the millennial whisper of how a parent came in and tried to negotiate salary on 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 her son's behalf. And it's like, like, really? Like, what's happening here? And when we take out all of those those obstacles, it creates this mentality that I can't, that perseverance and tenacity muscle isn't created, right? We've got to allow our kids to fail a little bit more often. And then the other side of it is social media. And which is kind of weirdly what I built my first really currency and career around. And it's any time that this generation wants that instant gratification, they post something and they get it, right? They post something on Instagram, TikTok, and it's always coming. So that dopamine fix, is happening. And so 
when they get into their own things or the work world and they they're like wait this is this this isn't anything like what i've been experiencing right but it's also what makes their tolerance for it so short right and we haven't experienced like let's see what this recession holds for what that generation does in terms of work but up until now they've tasted this kind of gig economy that has now gone into more of a white collared what the catalyst i mean the catalyst of what the pandemic did was it's no longer uber right i mean creatives can make a lot of money working in this gig economy it's finally evolved to this place where like no i'm working on my own terms i'm sleeping until 10. i'll work until 12 at night and maybe next week i won't even work right and it's this freedom that like to us as xers and boomers we're like what in the world what's happening here and we'll see how it kind of pans out um, but I do feel, I'm, I mean, I'm a strong advocate of we got to take the best of both and really cross-pollinate and cross-train using our greatest strengths of those different generations and how we were brought up. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's another dim dimension to this that I want to bring up as well. So the older generations, you know, we were more uh, rooted in family connections, morals, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of life's philosophy was kind of built around that, right? Um, and as we kind of uh, look at the newer generations with the ability to do so many things and uh, make the kind of money that you can make, be materialistic, what's your take on it? You know, are we going towards some kind of a nihilistic kind of a society where morals are a little bit more easily rearranged and, you know, the family dynamics are a little bit more loose? What's your take on it? That is a great question. And, you know, even as I talk to my wife with frustration um, in what is happening all around us, right? Uh, and I think a lot of it does come down to a lack of parenting and a lack of morals. And the fact that go to any restaurant, right? And I, you will look around and you will see these parents with younger children, if you see any of that happening at all. And the kids are on their iPads and iPhones because you know why? Because it's easier for the parents because they don't have to deal with them. And then they just get off into their own worlds versus I am the greatest advocate of genuine connection. And that is true for us and our children. It's true for us and our employees. And it's true for us when we're trying to sell something and those people that we're trying to sell to. And there is a missing component happening in our world with that connection with our children and with how within all of that we're teaching them some of these lessons and morals because it's hard and the and i i'm i'm uh i live a very privileged life right like and i i do not i take that as a responsibility you know you you juxtapose me to a blue collared you know low income family that's just trying to make ends meet and it's like i get it right you know i i i understand that um so yeah i mean i think there's a lot to dissect there but like deep down i will say like i i feel like we're coming back we will we we always end up kind of finding that middle ground right and we will go super far right and then we'll go super far left and so i do feel like we're going to be making a shift towards the other side but right now there there's an issue happening with with exactly what you're talking about and that's what i'm trying to inspire more of 
right? Like, to be honest, like, I mean, I'm, I'm out here speaking almost every week all over the place and it's not to make money or, or to become famous or, you know, become an influencer. I want to impact people as parents, as leaders and as friends. And, and, uh, I see hope. I do see hope. Awesome. What's the best way for the listeners to get hold of your books? Yeah. So, uh, if you just go to Amazon, um, the newest one, save your asks, uh, it'll pop up and it, the audible of both books, save your asks and the millennial whisper or me doing it in save your asks that I, I actually have a bonus, uh, to the audible of me interviewing the guy that wanted to punch me in the face, which is a guy in my audience, uh, 15 months ago, I approached him cause he wanted to punch me in the face. He went from the guy that wanted to punch me in the face to one of my greatest advocates. He's an executive at Microsoft. Um, and that, so that's a fun one. So, uh, just Google or go to Amazon and look those up. And then, uh, everything for how to contact me is on Chris me. So C H R I S T U F F dot me. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, easy to find me there or on Instagram, I will respond to any questions people have out there. And, uh, once again, my, my purpose is to inspire and connect and, um, I want to change the world. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your story and uh, also inspiring the audience with uh, all the work that you do. I'm sure the listeners will check out uh, what you have to offer and we'll be in touch. We wish you the very best as you move along on your journey. Thank you. Thanks.